welcome to Three at the Back, the football analytics podcast from OptiPro. One thing we've, we've always tried to do on this pod is make sure we've got a mixture of guests, both internally and externally. We want to want to make sure we, we incorporate the, the views of the wider industry. I think there's a, a risk when we when we keep it internal, we get, could get caught in a bubble. And, and that external approach is something we try to do today. So in saying that, I'm delighted to introduce our first guest, uh, Tolly Coburn, who is an Academy Assistant Performance Analyst at Arsenal. Welcome, Tolly. Hi. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. And alongside Tolly is uh, Sam Gregory, data scientist at OptiPro. Hi, Sam. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yourself? Good. 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 So we'll get we'll get st- uh, stuck in straight away. Uh, Tolly, could you tell us a bit about your role at Arsenal straight away and how you um, how you got, how, you know your journey into the industry, how you got into it? Okay. So I am a academy performance analyst at Arsenal Football Club. Um, I predominantly work with the younger age groups of the academy, so I work with the under nines to the under sixteens, and I lead on the foundation phase analysis. So a lot of video, a lot of introducing players to to how to view themselves and how to view teams, and and try and learn how to to analyze the game, um, and and also using a lot of video as part of a as part of coach education. So trying to use video as a as a way to promote the club philosophy and how we want to achieve our the way we want to play and how we coach that that way to play. So that's a lot of my role on the sort of academy side, and I also work very closely with with Stat DNA on our academy data analytics and and some work more recently with the first team. I started at Norwich Football Club, so I was a work placement there for a for a season. Um, so I, I took a year out of university. I was at Loughborough University, and I I think like a lot of undergraduates, I sort of didn't really know where I wanted to go. I was coaching at the time at, at Loughborough, and I had a really interesting football, and I sort of was applying for every placement there was. Um, and then a role at, at Norwich came up as a as a performance analyst, and it seemed like a very good mix of my sort of coaching knowledge and, and my kind of more analytical problem problem solving uh, skills. So, so I went there for a season. I moved up there, um, and it was a very very good experience, both personally and and professionally, filled with a lot of challenges. But it was a an excellent year, and I was I was very lucky to to be able to work with the under 18s for for a period of time and and also the under 16s so I um that was a, a great introduction to football and after leaving Norwich I I wanted to sort of branch out into different sports and try and gain a bit more experience and, and maybe sort of broaden my my knowledge of, of of analytics in sports so I I started working with British Canoeing um that was during the summer in their build-up to Rio and then I, I moved on to working with the LTA. So I was supporting British athletes in the run-up to Wimbledon, so during the grass court season and then at Wimbledon. And in 2016, so last last Wimbledon, I was supporting um, Andy Murray's team. So he has a, a full-time analyst, and I was supporting him in, in a lot of their work, predominantly on, on opposition. And then during the latter stages of my time, uh, with the LTA, uh, the role came up at Arsenal. I needed to go back and finish my degree, um, 
but I was I was lucky enough to be able to find a part-time role with Arsenal and, and balance both my my university work and, and working with them good stuff and I'm, I'm gonna bring it straight back to the um, to your time at Norwich and you mentioned earlier before we uh, started recording about working alongside Graham Murty and Darren Huckabee obviously two ex-pros they'll have that player mentality how did you find it working with them from the analysis side as sort of as sort of a straight in as, a, as your, your training ground essentially yeah so uh, I was very much chucked in the deep end because our assistant analyst at the time um, left so we didn't have a, an under 18s analyst so I was I was sort of leading on on working with them and and going on overnight trips and traveling as I mean Norwich everywhere's a travel from Norwich but uh, you know we were going down to Brighton and and to Newcastle and it was a really great experience because you know it was it was a lot more although in an academy setup you are always thinking about about development but when you get to sort of 16 18 and then especially under 23s you are looking at results and it was a really good experience about sort of learning about the, the prep that goes into to game days and after game days um, and especially when when results are a greater emphasis is put on results then it's 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 an interesting challenge then interacting with with coaches in that kind of environment I know academy football uh, certainly at younger ages it, it's probably less of a challenge because even in bad results you're you're more focused on on development whereas with the older age groups poor results reflect often poorly on on staff so it's that was definitely an interesting challenge and the sort of personnel I got to work with so working with Graham Murty he was a a really good coach to work with and I learned a hell of a lot from him and he's very um, he's very open to to analysis and he was very open to video and we had a very data-driven process at Norwich at, at the academy level so we we collected data both on a team and an individual basis and it was uh, he was very open to the team data that that we had and this would be on a game-by-game -game basis, so they knew exactly how they wanted to play. Their their philosophy was was very distinct. And was that was that informed from from the first team down? So, the academy weren't really informed by the first team. Um, the academy was, although we were on the same site, the academy had their own style of play. And considering at the time when I was at Norwich, Norwich were in the Premier League, and they were trying to stay up, it was sort of. For the, for the first team, although they have their own philosophy and where they wanted to play, there was a lot of, you know, we're going away to Man United, can we get a result here? Because um, that was the most important thing for them, whereas we were we had a lot more of a, a set style of play. Um, and I think that, that really helped from, for our, from our analysis side, because we knew exactly what we were, what we were trying to um, objectively look at from a team level so we knew that we wanted to, to be a high pressing team and we wanted to play a lot with the ball so we could apply our sort of analysis process sort of in line with the club philosophy and try and objectively evaluate how well we were performing on a, on a team level. And was it a case of, of trying to get players from the academy into the first team was it just creating the best player you can or was it sort of the priority to develop that, that team and bring that team through? So 
so at Norwich, it, we were we were always thinking about the individuals, and I think it's something I've learned from working at an academy level occasionally, and I know I I've, I've done this myself, where you'll lose sight of your end goal almost at an academy where even though it's a team game you're you are looking at the few individuals that you can get into the first team or in Norwich's case as well if they can sell them for for a big profit like you've seen with um with Murphy going to Newcastle yeah. so um for them their, their academy if they can produce players for the first team that's obviously great but if they can get some some real income from their top players that's again great so it was something that we always try to reflect on as part of our analysis process um, and Sam I know you've done a bit of work around analysing games at different age groups across different competitions how have you sort of found things from your perspective you know, one thing we've noticed is that it's not it's not quite as simple when you go from for example a, one of the top leagues in the world to a lower level league the focus is much different so if we went from one of the top five European leagues and compared the style of play there to maybe one of the uh, less highly rated European leagues you would see different things change than changing from the first teams at these leagues to, to the youth levels so when we look at for example if we look at sequence level data and we go from the first team of uh, PSG to say the first team of a second division team in uh, France what you would see is that PSG, they string together more passes per sequence, they play with the ball more at their feet, whereas in the lower levels there tends to be much more back and forth between teams. But when you look at lower level football, you don't really see that, and I think that sort of reflects what you're saying about the, the end goal being different. It's not necessarily, well, we have younger players and maybe not as complete players yet, but we still want to win at all costs. The point is development. So we've seen, for example, at lower levels, the sequence length tends to be similar. So if you look at teams, they pass the ball around just as much at the first team level as they do at the under 18s or under 21s and really the, the big change comes in terms of uh, the speed of attack and how, how maybe how aggressive teams are so you do see quite a difference from first team football to, uh, to whether it's the 21s or 18s that might not be reflected in the same way as going from a top level to a lower level just because you're saying the focus is more on player development it's more on making sure the players are comfortable performing at this level and it's not necessarily on win at all costs, it might be in a lower league team. And from an analyst perspective, what would your role be around potentially even does it exist in terms of preparing those players that are playing the age group football to move up to the to the senior squad? How does that work from your side? Yeah, so I think Sam raised a, an interesting point that academy level football can can differ from from first team level of course. So I think it, it it's important, especially from an from an analyst perspective, to recognise that. So, you often see from under sixteens down, shot volume compared to a first team game is like enormous. So you'll get team both teams might have twenty five shots a game. So it's sort of you know you can get loads and loads of chances. So if you're a number nine, for example, and you're playing at under sixteens level, and you're having say six chances a game, and you then go to make a, a big step up so when you do go and get your pro contract and you go to under 18s suddenly you might be getting half the number of chances so I think being able to recognise more more around skills which are applicable to when as you go up the age groups so if a player is looks outstanding at a younger age group 
I think we can sometimes at academy level we can get caught in a trap of thinking they're excellent at under 14 but is that because they are excellent in this kind of game scenario um, and as you get older and older you start to see some players fall off um, fall off the radar because they can't then cope with how that game dynamic has changed yeah I think um, particularly something something Ben McGrill our, our head of Optipride mentioned on, on a recent podcast around um, Ross Barkley being particularly developed at sort of under 14 level and how that's obviously an entire, entirely different game to what it is at senior level. Yeah, well, one thing that uh, I was talking to someone who'd done some youth coaching recently and talked about trying to bring in the concept of expected goals into youth coaching. So saying, oh, if you shoot from these locations, you're more likely to score. And he said one of the big issues they have at youth level is to be a player who shoots from outside the box all the time and always scores. So to tell him, oh, when you move up the levels, you want to take shots from better locations that you're more likely to score from, it's harder for that player to sort of unlearn what they've seen, which is when I shoot from 20 yards, I score every time. So why am I going to stop doing this and try and move the ball into a better location? Yeah, from a development perspective as well, it, if you're if you're a, an under 13 and you you just have the ability to kick the ball or strike the ball really well and you can score from distance, your your decision making in the final third becomes: Can I shift the ball and, and get a shot off rather than? Can I look to try and slide players in, or how can we create? And it's a really difficult challenge because you've got to try and balance the the development of a player going forwards with their enjoyment of the game, and and how much do you do you restrict what what they do? So I think that's a it's a challenging trade off um, for sure. And I, going to your point on expected goals, I think that sort of concept of trying to educate both coaches and players at a younger younger age group on how you're positioning and where you're taking shots from will influence how many goals you're, li- you're likely to score is a difficult concept to, to, to coach a, a young player if they're scoring five goals every game because they'll think, well, I'm doing really well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a real challenge. And sort of jumping forward to your role at Arsenal, is there... Is there a job from your side as an analyst to, to educate the other people working with data, both um, on the sports science side, on the coaching side, even on the playing side? So with, with my role at, at Arsenal, um, a lot of my, my work is sort of, has moved into to working with the data that we have on, on academy level. And a lot of the process that we have at the moment is very, is very early on. So a lot of, although we might have um, a large amount of data for, for young players it's not been part of, of the analysis process both on, on our side in the, in the performance department and, and within sort of sports science and coaching departments so it's uh, so yeah part of my role is, is starting to integrate data within our processes and we have uh, we have and as, as many clubs will have at the academy level we'll have reviews with players um, and we've sort of identified that as a as a great point to be able to use data as as a way to objectively evaluate how a player is performing. And I think we're starting now to to introduce that idea to to coaches. I think I think one of the difficult difficult challenges in youth football is is trying to identify how good a player is because your context is always changing. So. An under-16 group one year 
will be at a different level to an under 16s group in previous years so it's sort of trying to identify relatively speaking where a player is when your context is is constantly shuffling about and it's quite difficult when with the collected collection of data across those different age groups when it gets to a stage where there's a decent pool of data of player progression from that from that under 9 under 10 under 11 phase right through to the 23s you think that's that will see a real shift in the way players are evaluated at youth team level i think so i think um i think the influx of data at a at a first team level has has definitely started to to iron out some of the inefficiencies we have in 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 player recruitment or in player evaluation or or pre or post match analysis and there is definitely definitely inefficiencies within youth development you can see it with the huge number of players which go into academy level and never have careers um, so i think there was a an article in the guardian recently speaking just about this where players are sort of brought into the system enormous enormous sort of amount of players and then don't get anywhere so it's sort of trying to identify i think from early as we can players that do have the potential to to go on and play but it it's a real difficult it's a difficult skill because you've you're you're not only looking at how a how a player is developing on a performance level you've also got to look at how they're developing on a physical level and you've got to look at how they're developing socially as well um so you've got a lot of aspects to consider so i think performance data at academy level is is just part of a much bigger way of trying to evaluate youth players going back to your point i think once clubs and a lot of clubs at academy level are starting to collect data once clubs do have a good pool of data you'll get some some very valuable information but at the same time i think we should be careful about the interpretation of the data on its own and we're lucky that at arsenal that that we have um obviously the stat dna we're lucky that we have a, a continuity of 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 our data from the first team to to our under 16 level where we have very advanced data but we're also aware of of how that data plays a small part in a bigger bigger process so we have coaches that are very experienced in in youth development a lot of them have got 20 years plus working in in, in youth development so trying to to bring data in as a as a way of informing decisions but ultimately not being the only part in making the decisions i think there's also something to be said about the fact that we have a lot of data now on what at 20 years old we can predict okay this these are signs that a player looks like he's going to develop into a good player and we can track a player's career from age 20 to all the way now with the off the data going back to 2005 2006 in some cases we have 12 years of a player's career and we can make good predictions when a player's 20 that this is the type of player he looks like he's going to become it doesn't always pan out that way but we know a little bit about how that process works whereas we have very little data on what a player who's 15 how that player develops into a 20 year old and i think that it's sort of a place where you're saying we kind of have to be wary we don't want to say oh this player looks amazing at 15 so we know that he's going to be this kind of player at age 20. It might not be the same skills. I mean, there's a story that goes around about Harry Kane a lot that he, was a, he wasn't as fit as some of the other players when he was playing youth team football and was overlooked by a lot of coaches at the time. And of course, that was something he worked on and is now one of the best strikers in the world. So I think there's that issue too, that it's not 
the indicators of a good player, even at 20 years old, might not be the same indicators of a good player at 16 years old. And that's something that I guess academy analysts have to work on more than. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, you, you raise a really good point with, you know, with Harry Kane. This, the sort of story goes that he wasn't sort of seen as a, as a top talent around the ages of 15, 16. Even before he broke into the first team, he had some, some loan spells where he wasn't really impressing people on, on loan. And I know he was at Norwich briefly as well. And he wasn't, he wasn't a standout. And it's, I think on the academy side, it's about trying to identify where, where we can see a player or identify a player that, that will develop and trying to see past their, their sort of their, their performance and thinking more long term is the real challenge. Um, and I think data can certainly play a, a role in, in minimising the risk of either releasing a player that's going to be a or has a lot of potential to be a, a real talent or keeping a player on that may not then go on to make it. On the academy side, what's your what's your relationship with the coaches like? So we're very we're very lucky at Arsenal that we've got some very talented coaches, some very experienced coaches, and there's a real range of experience. So a lot of the play, uh, a lot of the coaches have had playing experience. So a lot of them have been, and and a number of the coaches at Arsenal were Arsenal Academy graduates. So a lot of them have have been at the club for a long time, and they understand you know the the sort of bigger picture of the club, so to speak. And a lot of co- coaches have come from completely different backgrounds. So at Helen, so we have we have four analysts. So we have effectively an analyst per two teams, um, and one analyst who just works with the under sixteens. So and the coaches are they they very much buy into our process uh, with video. So so we use video a lot as part of our our reflection on games and and also as part of player education. And I think we we've started to bring data in to our processes for for the older age groups in the academy level. And I think it's it's a it's certainly a long process in terms of because you don't want to um, you don't want to go straight in and say this player has got this metric. This means that he's great, or this means that he's terrible. I think you need to you need to listen to coaches' opinions, and you need to sort of reflect on. The opinion of the coach or the the opinion of different members of staff around a team, and and then sort of try and objectively analyse their opinion, and sort of reflect on whether your data is is supportive or where it, whether it challenges it, and and try and discuss a more sort of constructive uh, argument about player development, which ultimately comes down to your relationship with a with a coach. So I think we're lucky at Arsenal that we've got coaches who are very open to analysis and and credit to to our analysts who we've got a lot of experienced analysts who've been in the game for a very long time and especially at first team level they've they've established a very good relationship with the coaching staff that the conversations they have between the coaching and the the analysis department are, are, are very good um, and they're always very open conversations so so I've learned a lot from from uh, from our first team guys of how they interact with the coaching staff and and how they work with them. Excellent. And then was it been a case of sort of you learn as you go in terms of, oh, I know the coaches respond well to information presented this way or I need to communicate it that way, for example? Yeah, so uh, that was definitely something I learned 
during my time at Norwich. So timing was key with information. So especially what, what our analysis process at Norwich was effectively as soon as a game is finished, we'll try and get that, that data from the game on a team level and we'll try and feed that back to coaches. And although we might, we might have the data say two hours after a game or three hours after a game, it might be worth hanging back because especially at, at under, under 18s level, the result can influence how people perceive the game has gone. So, you know, I think, I think we're all, as football fans, we do it as well, where the result might not have gone the way you thought. And then you go back and you might watch the game and think, ah, okay, well, this didn't happen how I, how I thought it happened. So, and that definitely changes on an individual level. So, so part of the work I did at, at Arsenal last season was understanding how coaches work with video. So we, part of my, my sort of university research was how do we work with video and, and how do coaches use video as part of their practice and, and a big thing that came out of it was for them as a reflection tool and how they bring their, their perceptions from the game that, that they saw from the touchline and how does that influence their, their sort of use of video. So I think that you've got to be cautious and aware of where your coach is in terms of are they still under the influence of the results so to speak, both in a positive and a negative way. So feeding back information in terms of timing is, is really key. In terms of how different coaches in sort of prefer feedback, again, as an analyst, you've sort of got to recognize what your coach's sort of preferred method or methods are. Some coaches are, they just want to watch the whole game from start to finish. They want to sit down and they want to go, I'm blocking out two hours and we're, we're going to watch this and we're going to go all the way through and we're going to stop and start. Some coaches will reflect without watching the video and say, well, I can remember that we weren't good at this or we did this well. And can we go back over that particular kind of example? And some coaches are, are more open to your analysis on your own as an analyst. So your input to that process. Some coaches are more direct with what they want. And some coaches are more open to, to an analyst's interpretation of the game. And it just comes down to, to a coach's preference, really. Excellent. I think that's a, a really nice way to, to wrap up part one. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back to looking at how, uh, how we can learn from other sports in this space. We'll look a bit more about the Arsenal-Stat-DNA relationship and then we'll, uh, we'll touch on the Octopro Analytics Forum. Welcome back to Three at the Back. To start this second part, we're going to look into um, to sports beyond football. Tolly, you mentioned you had a bit of experience across canoeing and tennis. Can you tell them a bit about your roles there and how they have perhaps influenced uh, your approach to football and how you analyse the sport? Yeah, so um, with canoeing, I worked in the build-up to, to Rio. Um, and I also worked on their race days that they have. So their centre is based at the Lee Valley in Hertfordshire, um, which they, they hosted the the 2012 Olympics um, all of their events there so so I worked on their on their race days which uh, they'll have you know, 100 races um, all going down at 90 second intervals so we had to capture both on a video side and then provide data for our for the British athletes that were competing and, and also be able to feed data back to, to referees if there's any challenges on, on, on any decisions that they have and then the build-up to Rio, it was 
helping them in their coding process of and building up their their database of, of of data that they had on their on their British athletes. And then in in tennis, I I worked with predominantly Andy Murray's team at Wimbledon 2016, and then I worked again uh, at the Wimbledon just gone. And predominantly, my work was um, opposition analysis, so it was coding games uh, of potential opponents during Wimbledon. So providing data and, and any video feedback that was needed for those uh, for those competitions. So it was very very different from anything I'd done before because it was within a tournament environment where you're playing once every two days and the opponent you think you might have and you've done a lot of work for gets knocked out and all of a sudden you've you've got this opponent in 12 hours and you've got to try and produce as much information as you can. So it was a a real learning experience about working within a really high pressured and probably the biggest you know the biggest tournament especially for for Andy of of the uh, of the calendar year so so yeah it was an excellent experience and are there any particular lessons or approaches that you picked up in these roles that you've you've taken with you to your role at Arsenal yeah absolutely so one of the things i i was really impressed with at the LTA was their relationship they had with with their coaches so so Lorcan Lorcan Reen, who's Andy Murray's analyst, has a has an excellent relationship with with his coaching department, and the way that he relays information to them. So he will code games, and he'll produce a lot of the both the the data driven reports and the and the video, and the relationship that he's built up allows him to to sort of give his opinion and informed opinion more so he's sort of he's opened a real open communication between the coaching staff and himself and across the LTA the the analysts there are very experienced at being able to work with with coaches effectively and one of the really difficult parts of of working in in tennis as we spoke about the tournament structure because you often only have a day in between playing games so trying to produce the work as quickly as you can and and then making decisions about if you have enough data or enough video to make sort of uh, tactical decisions based upon that it, that's a that's again a real challenge and also in a tournament environment when you're when you're not actually at the tournament that's a, a big challenge that's uh, so after after Wimbledon, I worked with some of the Brits at the U.S. Open, but I was obviously based in London, so it was trying to feed back information when you can't, you're not doing it face to face is is really tough. And there's that level of you need to to feed back the information that you know will be interpreted how you want it to be interpreted. So that's a that's a real challenge. Yeah, I've heard that on the. On the time frame side of things, before I know a lot of analysts who, particularly those on, on the championship side, when there's such an influx of games, often two games a week, just the uh, the time limitation, think a really sort of underappreciated challenge of, of that role. And Sam, I know you're you sort of as our resident Canadian, sort of got quite a good knowledge of the US sports, so understanding both the some of the analytical aspects that we've learned and we've brought into uh, to football. How have you found it on that side? How has that informed your approach and your role? Well, I think um, one of the main ways that's influenced sort of our thinking on the uh, OptiData science team has been with the sequences work. So when I first started about a year and a half ago now, 
there's loads of work to catch up on, all the work that had been done by previous data scientists who I was coming in to replace. And one of the big projects was what's now been sort of released as the sequences and possessions framework. And that's the, uh, the stringing together of ultra events, yeah. essentially. So stringing together events into uh, a sequence, you know, passing sequences or sequences that involve events belonging to a possession of the same team. So when I started, Johannes uh, Harkin, who uh, was a senior data scientist, suggested that I read a couple chapters of uh, Basketball on Paper by Dean Oliver. So Dean Oliver was a presenter at the forum a couple years ago and worked for a couple NBA teams and was kind of one of the pioneers of, bas of uh, analytics in basketball. And he'd written about possessions in basketball, which is now it's all over the place. You see stats adjusted for possessions, so rather than looking at rebounds, they'll have rebounds per 100 possessions. And it's just a bit interesting framework to look at the game. And anyway, so Johannes recommended that I read this to start out just because this was a project that we were working on and it ended up really seen recently, I guess. So I think that's just an example of kind of the overlap between the sports. Obviously, a possession in basketball is very different to a possession in football, but they have, I mean, the sports have a similar sort of style to them in the fact that the team possesses the ball, they move the ball either up the field or down the court and try and score. And I think a lot of it is understanding what you can take from how you take something that's been done in a different sport and adapt it to your own sport. Because obviously, if we just took the basketball notion of possession, it wouldn't work well in football. So we have to adapt, take what's useful from that sport and kind of adapt it. And I think we've done a pretty good job in terms of taking, taking a concept that was ingrained in another sport and turning it into something that's our own. And I think that's sort of the key with learning from other sports is understanding why it works, what works in a certain sport, why it works, and how you can adapt that to your own sport. Definitely. And, and obviously, tennis and canoeing are, are very different to football. So. Did you, did you see a lot more challenges along the way? Was it more those sort of underlying processes that you could take with you? Yeah, so sort of touching on Sam's point, it was uh, trying to, to recognise why the processes were different and why they were in place in these other sports and, and how they were applicable to football. So I almost see it like a, like a spectrum from, from canoeing to, to football with tennis sort of in between of highly, highly structured sport to completely unstructured sport. So in canoeing, you have a certain and set number of gates which are you have to take in different different ways. So you can dig into into uh, into your data and get to a level where you can say if a certain athlete doesn't perform within within this boundary, they won't win a medal. You can sort of go to that kind of level. And in tennis, you sort of you have a bit of a mixture. So every point starts in the same way with a, with a serve and return and you can identify how likely it is for someone to win a tennis match by how well they serve and return so the level of detail that, that we sort of go into into that was was very high but then you have an open game from then uh, essentially so trying to trying to find definitive actions in in football is is really hard but I think it's something that as a field we've we've started to, to look into more how can we define actions which directly influence performance I think is a is a is a challenge and something that, that I've definitely taken from more structured sports and that was sort of sort of reinforce the point behind um, why we've seen expected goals rise so high and I know Sam that's something that you've you've looked at in relation to I know you've done a, you've got a bit of knowledge in terms of ice hockey and the analytics side there well, what's kind of interesting about, well, ice hockey is almost even more of a similar sport to football in that you're trying to score on a goal. It's uh, 
again, it's a similar sport in a lot of ways, and shots are sort of the unit of analysis they use all the time in hockey. So initially, when football analytics was sort of just getting off the ground about five or six years ago, a lot of the main metrics we had were ones that were directly taken from hockey. So people used um, what's called Corsi in hockey, they called total shots ratio, which just compares the number of shots that a team takes the total number of shots in that game. So if you take if you take 10 shots and your opponent takes 5 shots, then you would have a total shots ratio of 10 divided by 15. So this sort of thing was just to look at, again, how whether you're dominating the play more or less. But what we found pretty quickly in football was that there's way fewer shots and the shot quality varies a lot more. And so that sort of brought us into expected goals. And what's interesting is when we started, we were sort of taking from hockey. We moved ahead with expected goals because we realized the slight difference between the sports and which basically comes down to shot volume and shot quality. So by using expected goals, we could better value what the probability of scoring is from different shots. We could say this is a better opportunity than this opportunity, and we shouldn't be calling these two. We shouldn't be equivocating between these two very different chances. And after this became kind of commonplace in football analytics, ice hockey looked back at this and said, oh, well, we should take this as well. So it's kind of an interesting uh, example of two sports taking from each other, whereas they're kind of pushing each other on in different directions. And now in ice hockey, I know a lot of people use expected goals instead of the old traditional shot metrics because they've seen it work so well in football and see its applicability. So I think there is sort of a give and take between sports as well. And we're all sort of across different sports trying to solve similar problems, even if they're not, even if the sport is different, as you say, we're trying to tie essentially what happens on the pitch or on in whatever, on the water, whatever surface <laughs> yeah. you're playing on to outcomes. And that process is always kind of the same. It's just understanding what methods to use to tie that to your specific outcome. Yeah. So, as as you said, so within within canoeing, you you are confined to to a certain way of getting from top to bottom. So, you you do have the ability to be able to to really dig into really real specifics on on how you can get from top to bottom. As fast as possible is that that is your outcome um, and in tennis that structured nature it allows you to start to look at patterns of play and and how different patterns will will ultimately lead to, to winning points and in football I think it it's important to try and consider what is effectively what are we trying to achieve and that's where expected goals is playing a, a really important part in in, in professional football and I think as well something that that I've definitely sort of learned from from my experience in football is is making it very clear to to coaches and and to any other stakeholders when you're feeding back data is 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 being able to describe data which is directly related to performance and data which is related to more stylistic measures I've, I've certainly lost coaches interest when I've uh, when I've started talking about stylistic data when if they start to say well this doesn't relate to winning or losing if you don't make that clear to to an hour, uh, to a coach that that can sort of cause problems so when you're looking at something like pressing for example so PPDA is obviously a, a big publicly known metric for for pressing but it it's very good at, at showing a stylistic measure of pressing rather than an effective measure of pressing and making that clear in football that's definitely something I've learned from from working in other sports where the data is 
maybe more direct in terms of outcome and performance rather than a sort of stylistic measure. And PPDA, fastest bit offensive action, something uh, Colin Trainer originally um, originally shared on the on the Stats One website a, a couple of years ago. That I know he's been sort of really picked up and helped uh, help move on defensive defensive analysis. Looking at that in terms of the uh, the data side at Arsenal, it'll be good to um, to get a brief overview of um, of Stat DNA and Arsenal and that relationship there. Yeah. So as is well documented um, Arsenal have invested heavily in in their use of advanced analytics and predominantly stat DNA's work is is on the is on the first team side so their influence in in first team processes on on the performance side so data for for opposition um, data for post game reflection and and data for recruitment they're the predominantly the the main roles that stat DNA have so and they work very closely with with those departments, and because Stat DNA have been with Arsenal for a long time, and the the majority of the staff who, when Stat DNA first were were bought by Arsenal, are still there. So the relationship between the guys at Stat DNA and and our first team analysts is is very strong, and there's a lot of good communication between the data, um, which is sort of then interpreted by our first team analysts and then working with the first team coaches about how they're going to inform or use that data to as part of their their processes so it's a, it's a strong relationship that they have because it's been established for a number of years and sort of as my role is as developed has been to try and improve the processes in in areas that we haven't necessarily um use stat DNA as, as, as much or there hasn't been as much of a, a communication between between stat DNA and, and ourselves so on the academy side my role has been to try and utilize stat DNA's data in, in a way that we can communicate that to, to coaches and to, to different stakeholders within within our more senior academy teams and alongside that I've been working with the, the sports science department on using data and trying to best use that data to, to inform decision making. So I suppose from, from your perspective, all the, uh, the tools are now in place and you know, there's been more than enough time in terms of Stat DNA and Arsenal's relationship and that, that process to develop and now it's a case of we've got all this resource, let, let's use it to the maximum right across the club. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Sam and I were, were speaking off air about how I had this experience in, in, a, in both other sports and, and at Norwich where you can collect the most advanced amazing data possible but more often than not analysts aren't the decision makers they're the decision sort of influencers so to speak so when we have a large amount of data being able to effectively communicate that to to coaches or to support staff is the most important aspect um, after you've collected all this data so so we're certainly starting to move towards bringing data into into different processes and it's uh it's definitely a challenge there are lots of lots of challenges that are associated with with working with data both in sort of manipulating the data to to be how what is useful and also how you then integrate that into your different processes and how you work with the different coaches and support staff on on how to sort of bring data to their processes and sort of bringing them up to speed on, on how data can improve their process. That's a really interesting insight there. 
We're going to move on now and talk about the OptiPro Analytics Forum. Um, it's coming up this February, and and Tolly, you've you kindly agreed to be a, uh, a mentor for the presenters. So for the for the 2018 forum, a the selected presenter will have a chance to speak with a club analyst to share their work so far to to understand how to better present it to a to a football focused audience. The, the understanding around the application, what can be implemented, what perhaps is too far removed, what metrics are highly valued within clubs, and, and so on from there. So, um, Tony, you attended you attended last year. It'd be good to know what you what you found beneficial about the forum and where perhaps you'd what perhaps you'd like to see from it that isn't quite there yet. So, I've learned an enormous amount from what is in the public domain. So, when I when I started at Norwich, I was reading. All the articles on on Statsbomb and um, listening to your podcast, Sam, and listening to this podcast, and trying to get as much information from the public domain as, as I could, because so much of the work which goes on in the public domain is is very very strong, and more often than not, analysts in a public domain have they don't have a they'll have uh, their own work pressures, but they won't have say the the pressure that you have uh, in, within a football club, and they have more of a an opportunity to work on on some really exciting projects. So, I was lucky enough to go last year. It was it was really strong. A lot of the speakers brought some really uh, some really exciting and really interesting ways of using the data. And I think it was again a way of moving forward from from what we currently have to questions that haven't necessarily been answered. I think that's really important. That kind of trying to apply data to questions that we haven't necessarily answered. But I, d- I think that one of the things that could definitely be improved is is how we're or how the presenters are, are feeding back to a more football-based audience. I think a lot of time was was spent on on the process of building the analysis and the methodology rather than how that can be applied to a football context. So, and it's something that, that only being in a club, I've really been able to learn trying to go from your raw data. And where that might that might mean something to to me or another analyst, and trying to to bring that to football and to to try and sort of portray how what the data says in a in a method that's going to make sense for for a coach or for someone that doesn't have the, the sort of data knowledge. Yeah, I've always I've always wondered, and I don't know if this this would be right or wrong, whether a presentation could be flipped and the results almost become first of here's what I found, and then I'll work back to sort of tell you how I got there. I wonder if if that would help in any sort of way up. Yeah, I mean, I think a big thing that, that could be improved is is the use of video, because more often than not, any work that, that we do, whether it's data-driven or video-driven, will be fed back via video, because that's the way that, that coaches see the game. And I always try and think, within, within my role, if I can go from the data to some sort of context so, for example, Ted Knutson's work with, with shot maps applies a really nice context of, of shot data and it's something really visual and something that people start to ask questions about and start to interpret because it relates to the game. And then if you can go into video from that, you're directing it in how a coach is, sees the game effectively. Um, whenever we interact with coaches, anything that's data-driven, we we don't really speak about data, we speak about football. And it might be driven by the data, but effectively it is football. So I think trying to 
take your your answers and applying them as much as you can into the context of, of the game is really important. And the uh, the presenters will will have that access to video now as well, which is which is excellent for the presentations. So it's almost like Sam, you got a bit of a sh- uh, broad end of the deal there. You didn't have access to an analyst, and you didn't have access to video. Do you think either of those two would have changed or influenced the way you presented when you presented back in 2016 around a sort of, and that was around the way a team uh, attacks and whether they should have a sustained approach or varied approach? Yeah, well, I think for me, the way I sort of see the forum is that it's trying to bring together two worlds which probably don't interact enough, which is the analyst world, the people actually in clubs and people who are watching video on a daily basis with the the ideas of the analytics community or it kind of ranging from professional data analysts to hobbyists, but people who have interesting ideas about football using data. And I think, I guess the idea of the forum is for these people to try and kind of think more like the other. So to get these data analysts to think a bit more about what is what are the questions that a performance analyst has? How do they have to convey the answers to these questions? How do they communicate these problems? And for performance analysts to think a bit more about how I have these problems, I have all these things I have to do, how can I use data? to answer these questions and I guess slowly probably with each forum we've kind of brought these two groups closer and closer together and I mean that's the ultimate goal of the forum is bringing all these people in the same place so I guess I mean looking back to my year when I presented if I'd had um, an analyst to help me I could have probably narrowed down my question a little more thoroughly come up with something that is more directly you could have a direct impact on a football club on a day-to-day basis and then also present with video. I think I had photos of different things. It would be nice to have, to have had videos <laughs> in my presentation. But um, yeah, I mean, that's basically what the forum is about, is about bringing together these two groups. So anything that kind of helps to bridge that gap and allow these two groups to communicate better and share and learn off their idea, off each other's ideas in a more effective way will help. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's a challenge for the presenters when you've got sort of teams competing in Europe compared to teams in League One, League Two we had last year, and academy analysts we've got in the room. So a one-size-fits-all solution is, is unlikely to work from one 30-minute presentation. So I think there's also a scope, particularly from, from those within clubs, to look at how they approach a presentation, be that, would it help me the following weekend? It, can it change the way I approach a particular problem? Is it more of a longer-term piece of work? I think there's loads of different ways where a, uh, a presentation can, can be valuable to everyone in the room. I think also when we look at sort of the angle that people come at this, I mean, we're often coming from the, from the data analysts come at this from often the perspective of a football fan as opposed to someone who has any experience within the club. So as someone, I mean, for me, I now in my role currently talk to people at clubs all the time and I'm talking to analysts quite a bit. But before I had this job, I wasn't really in that position. So when you're approaching this, you think, okay, as a football fan or as someone who can imagine myself working in a club, what would I and what would the, the question I have be or what would I want to apply at that level and that's not necessarily those aren't the same questions that always that you guys have on a day-to-day basis so I think part of it is kind of trying to feed back before the presentations are made to get a better understanding of what those questions actually are because again I mean I wouldn't have known before having some of that feedback from performance analysts yeah definitely I think most of most of the people in, in clubs who who attended the, the forum their question is what does this mean for me and I think trying to improve the, the communication between those presenting and, and those in clubs is, is really important and and not only just in the terms of, of the Opta Pro Forum but in terms of the wider scope of, of public work I think a, a lot of public work 
maybe doesn't answer a question which is relevant to to some some work that goes on in clubs that's not to say that it's not very good work but it might not be applicable to to either a time frame of 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 what an analyst can can do but there's a lot of work which i think is more now born out of questions which people within clubs are starting to ask so I, i'm not entirely sure whose work it is but there's recently been work on sort of uh, i think it's on stats bomb where there's the pitches split into lots of different zones and you're looking at past completion in different zones yeah. and progression into different zones and that I think that's Dustin Ward yeah. yeah I mean that, I think when I read that it immediately made sense to me and I could uh, sort of visually see how how this would what this meant in terms of a footballing decision so if if I'm easy to break down if I can go from a zone at the back to a zone in the middle constantly then my team are then we're not set up very well and I think that kind of work where it's immediately sort of visual and applicable into into football is is the kind of work which will make sort of more sense to to those in clubs and be more applicable to club work excellent i think that's that's a really nice way to uh, to wrap things up for today tolly thank you very much for uh, for joining us really appreciate your time thank you uh, thanks for inviting me and sam thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me back on <laughs> to serve your suspension now <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for listening